back to episode five of the Lady Science Podcast, a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a writer, editor, and PhD student studying 20th century American culture and history of the American Space Program in the 1960s. I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian of science and freelance writer with words in various places on the internet. I'm currently a regular writer on women in the history of science at smithsonianmag.com. Uh, and I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. When I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing research projects at the Chemical Heritage Foundation in Philadelphia. So this month, uh, we're super excited about this episode. Uh, the three of us will be discussing and fangirling over one of our favorite TV shows called The Midwife. Uh, and then writer and researcher Amy Chambers will join us to talk about her work on women, gender, and science in entertainment media. Okay. Call The Midwife. I'm so excited. <laughs> Yay. I think Yay. I did want to say also that I think this is like such a good discussion for us to have this episode because it comes out with our 40th issue so it's a little bit of an anniversary Woo! and call the midwife is like one of the first things that Layla and I ever had like the kind of critical discussions that led to um working on women and gender together and to lady science itself and it's one of the first things we wrote about for the magazine so it's just a nice little yeah, yeah, it is. I didn't even think about that that's great yeah so I guess we should say just a little bit about the show in case people don't know, but it's a British television show and it's a period show set in, I think the first season starts in like 1957, right? So the end of the fifties and it's set in East London in Poplar and it follows these midwives who work uh, with other midwives who are nuns. <laughs> But the, it's like the young nurses, and they live with these nuns, and they take care of all the people in Poplar and deliver a bunch of babies and do community care and have all kinds of extremely charming adventures. <laughs> um, but one of the reasons that, well, I guess the main reason that what Layla and I um, got so excited about this show and um, wanted to write about it to begin with is... For me, it's just incredible. It was the first time I'd ever watched a television show that was just like exclusively about women and women's lives and the things that are particular to being a woman in a way that wasn't like gimmicky or it just has a very sort of straightforward angle on the lives of these women. And they're all very different and like they have their own trajectories and very little of it has anything to do with men. And I just, it's so incredibly refreshing. I think it's in like the beginning of like episode two or three of season one, where they have like the voiceover. Um, who's the actress that does? It's Vanessa. Uh, it's Vanessa, Vanessa Redgrave. Yeah. And she's doing her traditional voiceover that she has every episode. And I think it even starts with her saying something like, and the men were just extra. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was rewatching, uh, the second episode of the first season last night. And there, a lot of that stuff is like kind of explicit in the first season about like taking care to say like, this is a show about women 
and this is the way it's going to be. And they do that through the voiceover a lot, where Jenny's talking about like understanding her life in Poplar as being sort of centered around women in a way that it might not otherwise be like if she worked at a hospital or something. And so the setting is really important for making the show like focused on women in this way. So I just wanted to talk, I guess, more generally about the show and its sort of like aesthetics and, and production and why I think it's special and why I love it so much. The biggest thing for me that I, in addition to not ever seeing TV that was just about women, I had never seen um, labor and delivery portrayed on TV the way that it is on Call the Midwife. I, it's incredible. It's, like I said, it has that sort of very straightforward kind of gaze that isn't, it isn't like ashamed or afraid of the bodies that it's looking at in a way that just fills my heart up. So like babies have like goo and blood on them when they're born (laughs) and that's okay. And you see some goo and some blood and stuff. And like the way they just really get the camera. I mean, it's not explicit. You don't see any genitals or anything, but like they get the camera right up in there, like next to the mother's hip and stuff. And you see the midwives working, you know, it's a bodily practice. You see bodies touching each other and we, I don't know. It's just, it's, I think that maybe there's a cultural thing about American TV, especially portraying women's bodies. Like this, it just, it, it felt almost taboo to me. Like, growing up watching American television. Well, and even like the way that they, because they don't just focus on like the delivery itself, like the baby and the mother, but like the actual practice of midwifery with the way that they show how the midwives place their hands um, on the mother and on the baby during delivery that like, that this is a legitimate practice that you had to do in a very specific way. Yeah, I think sometimes there's like a, it's almost like that cooking show magic of television logic where like you see the mo- like you see the mother in labor and then you like see the doctor and then some stuff happens that you don't really see that they like fill in with B-roll of like the dad being upset or something and then like through the magic of TV like a baby is born but like yeah they show the midwives saying like you got to like you're gonna have to turn over or I'm gonna have to like put my shoulder into your thigh and like push on you this way like it's stuff I've never seen before so like I kind of learned a lot about yeah it's like and they talk they talk about they talk about like I feel like especially early on there's a lot about enemas and and just like other like unlike awkward bodily functions that uh that have to do with with being pregnant and giving birth and uh and like they always mention the afterbirth it's not like like they all like they again like they talk about all of like the goo of (laughs) of giving birth in women's bodies and and they don't forget that yeah exactly this is part of the texture of the world i was just reminded of that episode where they uh the midwife like gives the uh afterbirth to the husband because he wants to put it on his tomatoes (laughs) Because it helps his tomatoes grow, and I was just like, "This is a fantastic." <laughs> um, so I guess yeah, that's the big thing for me is just the 
the physicality of the portrayal of pregnancy and labor and delivery is just, it's unlike anything I've ever seen before. Um, more broadly, the show's perspective on its setting in, of Poplar in East London is there's a lot of poverty and there is, in you know, in the 50s, there's these sort of people that are still dealing with these sort of haunting legacies of like the workhouse and, you know, things are better. Now, in the time the show's set, they talk a lot about the NHS and how there are more social programs, but a lot of the people in Poplar grew up with nothing. There are characters in the show who, um, they had rickets or like they were deprived. They One time they talk about someone being deprived of like sunlight. Like, they grew up somewhere without windows and they couldn't see the sun for a long time. So there's a like, there's a really this sort of disturbing like past that everyone in Poplar is, is dealing with and coming to terms with and the show doesn't hide it and it also doesn't fetishize it and so it deals with people from all different um, classes different races and and there's never any sort of leering or judgment and i mean this is true of things that you would never see on american television there's an episode about incest i was literally just thinking about that yeah that is handled unbelievably sensitively i i've never seen anything like it there's an episode about um people with developmental disabilities having a sexual relationship that's something i've never seen before uh, and all of these things are handled extremely sensitively and openly in a way that is just really refreshing and i don't know so this is i think just you guys have other stuff you want to talk about specifically. I'm just gonna, I'm just gushing about the show. And so, the one last thing I wanted to say is that uh, I, I didn't realize this because I'm, I'm an American watching British TV on Netflix, so I'm not sort of embedded in the culture of it. But apparently, Call of Midwife is viewed as like, as just like fluffy, feel good TV for for women. And when we did a screening of this one um, with our students a couple of years ago. And that's what one of them said was that they're like, well, isn't this just like, this is just British feel good TV. I mean, I guess that's something we can maybe talk a little bit about that, like how stories about women that are focused on women and interested and, uh, you know, admit that there's something interesting about women are sort of marginalized as just like feel good TV. I think that's like lifetime stuff in U.S. is kind of built that way, but I, you know, I gave that student a talking to, and then we had a good discussion about how it's not feel good TV. Yeah. Or yeah, it's funny how it gets discussed uh, as like in this yeah like cozy British TV category, or oh, it's um, it's really saccharine, and there's always a happy ending, and or oh, it's it's not it's not explicit. It's just, like, there to make you feel good. And I'm like, actually, like, there's a lot of, like, dark stuff in it, but it doesn't, but yeah, but it doesn't fetishize the dark stuff. And I think that there's also, yeah, there's a degree to which, uh, because it's about women and women's issues, and I think we get bill it as this, like, happy, squishy, feel-good thing. But I also think that, like, so much serious TV these days is about fetishizing, like, 
terrible things that happen and not uh, and then they say oh well no but that's it's just life is hard and here's the show where like it's not fetishizing that but is saying well life is hard and terrible things happen but like people keep getting shit done because that's what you have to do that's so much more powerful yeah so much of tv is like it has to be dark and gritty and yeah. the you know the the protagonists have to be these anti-hero types of characters where you have to feel conflicted about who they are as people and whatever you don't get that with any of the really the protagonists any of the the nuns or any of the the midwives and the the music is often very uplifting no matter how dark that episode is that it ends with um a narrative and it's Vanessa Redgrave who's telling you everything will be okay yeah and it's just like it's it really does a good job of weighing um, reality with, um, with the sentimentality that comes out of these types of stories. And I don't, and I think it's the sentimentality angle that makes people kind of build this as puff rather than something that's like a, a serious show or doing like actual serious storytelling. And I, I'm going to talk about in a minute, like actual serious historical work, um, but just the idea of it being sentimental, the fact that it makes people cry <laughs> all the time, <laughs> um, that, 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 that label of sentiment being so closely associated with things that are feminine for such a long time um, is what makes it seem not like a serious show. But it is a really serious show. So Layla, I want you to talk to us about the thalidomide arc. Which, like, could there be any... I don't understand. Is there anything more serious than thalidomide? Like, how, how do we even have to it's, have this debate about so, this show? It's so dark and so horrifying. Everything about it. Yeah. But, but Layla, have at it. <laughs> yeah, so the thalidomide uh, story arc, they tease it at the end of season four in really the most just absolute soul-crushing way, if you know what's coming. So the way that season four ends is a mother who had to be, she was hospitalized, right? Um, because her morning sickness was so bad. Like she couldn't stay at home. Um, she had to be constantly medicated for, for her morning sickness. And so Dr. Turner um, prescribes thalidomide to her. And it ends with her being able to go home after taking this miracle drug and she's like putting on her coat in a very jaunty way and she's heading out with her children. And that's kind of how the season ends um, with the promise that something like this had for women who um, had really bad, tough pregnancies. And then in season five, um, the baby is born and um, she, it's baby Susan, I believe is the baby's name. Um, and she's born um, with um, a birth defect. And um, this is the beginning of the, the thalidomide story arc. So um, some historical context for what thalidomide was. And um, I don't think that maybe in the U.S. there's as much consciousness about what happened there because it didn't happen in the same way in the U.S. We only had 17 reported cases of birth defects from thalidomide in the U.S., um, whereas in Europe and Australia, there were thousands. Um, worldwide, there are about 10,000. Um, 
But so the drug was manufactured by a German company in 1953, and it was originally used as a sleeping pill replacement for barbiturates. Um, and so then it was used to treat morning sickness in pregnant women, and that started being prescribed for that specific purpose in 1957. So um, one of the side effects that was well known and wasn't always marketed with the medication itself was peripheral um, neuritis, which is like inflammation of the nerves and can be really painful. Uh, but no one really asks like, well, what will this do for pregnant people if this is affecting nerves, you know? Um, so uh, it was manufactured and distributed pretty much um, all over Germany, came to the U.S. after it was marketed in um, Britain and Australia. And throughout the 1950s, there was really little to no oversight in how drugs were manufactured and also how they were marketed. So, so, so you know, someone could sell thalidomide as, um, you know, curing morning sickness and leaving off the side effect. And that would have been completely legal. You can't do that anymore. And so the result of what this did for um, babies and, and for pregnant women was um, just very severe birth defects. Um, and we don't even know how many fetuses died in utero because of it. There's no way of knowing that. Um, but one of the most visible birth defects was... Um, Focomelia, which is limb deformities. And that's what they really show in the show. And they do that with prosthetics. So usually in the show, and the reason why like things look so real with the babies is because they use like 10 day old babies um, as newborns and the mothers sign up to have their babies on the show before they even give birth. Um, so I'm sure they just have a constant flow of just like newborn babies coming in and out of that set. Um, but for these, they use prosthetics. Um, instead of the real, real babies. And they look incredibly real. It's pretty amazing, actually. Um, so after the thalidomide thing, governments had um, much stricter regulatory processes. In the U.S., we had the um, Kefauver-Harris Amendment. Um, and then in the U.K., which is where this is taking place, um, was in 1963, the government set up the Committee on Safety Drugs. And um, then in 1968, the Medicines Act, which established um, the Committee on Safety um, and renamed it Committee for Safety of Medicines. And that's very similar to what we have now in the, in the U.S., so similar to the FDA. But um, so season five starts off in 1961. So that's the same year that thalidomide was withdrawn from the market uh, because of the birth defect. So the, the timeline of the history that they're showing is really great and really spot on. Um, and in general, the history of this, what they're showing is really spot on. So one of the things that I really, really like about the way they handle this story arc is that they, it seems like there was, they all felt kind of like a big responsibility in the way that they told the story, um, that they kind of felt the weight of what they were trying to portray and what they were trying to say. And Heidi Thomas, the series writer, and she's also the executive producer, um, she grew, she was a child when this was happening. So she saw some of this stuff going on. And so it was, I think, 
a somewhat of a personal history for her as well. And so you kind of had these different angles of history coming in. And so she said in an interview that this quote, this isn't just history. People affected by thalidomide are still fighting for the recognition of their injuries. Um, and she says that they are, they're telling just the beginning of the story that is still ongoing. So a lot of the babies that were born with these birth defects, um, are still alive and their families are still alive. And, you know, they, what, just got an apology like less than 10 years ago, you know? So, I mean, they had to fight even for an apology, much less any financial assistance from having to live a life, um, with a disability. Um, and so I think that, um, this show does some actual really good historical work, um, aside from just being like a good TV series, good storytelling. Um, I think it's doing actual good historical scholarship. Um, and I think that the way that they feel responsible for telling that history and telling that story is a really good lesson for historians in general. And I think, um, like for, for us who like for me studying, you know, 19th century and earlier is that we see the effects of history, you know, the, you know, making connections and threading those things. But this is almost, this is completely different because these people are still alive. Not only do we still feel the effects, we can see them. And so certainly do the people that live with, um, that live through this time. I think it shows like just what a responsibility that historians have to do justice to the subjects that they're studying. Um, so that's one of the things that I, I love about this show, but it's speci specifically the story arc that they, they took such care on. I also really like that they, since they followed kind of this one family through the process of the, the pregnancy through, to, through birth, you know, and into um, kind of trying to go forward from there that you get also more of a feel of the personal aspect of what this could do to families. And especially since they're working in the East End, what this could do to poor families. Um, so I really like that you get kind of the larger history, but then you also get the more personal aspect of what this did to people. And especially to women, one of the things in, that they show in the story arc is how women were constantly blaming themselves for what had happened to their babies. And, you know, Women are historically and presently, you know, positioned to be the one's responsibility for reproduction, right? Because it's their, their bodies. And so if something goes wrong, that blame is placed on the mother. One of the things that I think is really interesting about this plot arc is, uh, so if you were, if you were to make one like historian of medicine criticism of this show, it's that there are times when it dips into kind of a, like, everything new is better and, and modernization is an upward, uh, track and, and it doesn't, I, I don't, honestly, I think it does a better job of not falling into that than a lot of like history of medicine on TV. But there are moments that in like creating a happy ending, the happy ending is, well, these people now have like more technology available to them. Isn't that great? And this whole plot arc skewers that entirely, and they're really explicit about that uh, at, at, as, like, kind of... Because it's presented as this legitimately important um, medicine that is that is helping women, because especially if, like, you're a working woman, um, morning sickness, is, even if it didn't send you to the hospital, could be totally debilitating. Like, what do you do if you can't go to work because you're throwing up all day? 
uh, that's and that's a serious issue for for someone who is heavily reliant on that income. Uh, and so like it presents like the importance of that, the kind of that hope of like a magical solution and and then kind of skewers, I don't want to call it hubris, but I'm going to call it hubris, like the hubris of saying, oh, we can find a solution to every problem and it will be easy. I think uh, it actually demonstrates the show kind of like growing self-awareness as it has matured because there, um, I think it's the one I was watching last night, the an early episode from the first season talking about the woman who had, was it rickets, I think? And so she um, had some scarring or something that made it really difficult for her to carry pregnancy to term. And it sort of, that that storyline wraps up with her being able to get a cesarean section uh, for without charge because of the NHS. And uh, I, you know, we could probably do a whole episode about cesarean section <laughs> uh, and the history of that particular procedure. But so there is this, like, that I think is one of those um, all progress is good progress kind of um, storylines, but they very often overturn that sentiment. And I think, especially with the, the little mind thing, they do it in a way where they pattern the beginning of that plot line after these sort of earlier progress narratives. And then they flip it on you in a way showing their like own self-awareness about what they've written before and how they've sort of constructed this history before. Um, and so you expect that when the mom, um, mom to be comes home and she can finally stop throwing up and she can take her kids out. And, you know, it seems like one of those progress upward and onward kind of narratives. And then, then you find out what drug it is she's taking <laughs> and it's like totally devastating. Yeah. Well, and they kind of tease, um, the kind of the contrast between what they're doing at Nanata's house with the midwives and what they're doing in the hospitals. Um, especially, and I, I can't remember exactly which season when Jenny goes to work in the hospital and they don't let her be with the mother and the babies the way that she would have been in a woman's bedroom, you know, delivering that baby with her own hands. Instead, She's kind of the nurse that stands back now while a doctor takes over in a in a hospital ward. Um, and so the setting is very different. Her place in that setting is completely changed. Um, and it, it shows a really nice contrast between what midwives do and why that matters and why that's important um, versus the more the more modernizing of childbirth um, in the hospital ward. Are you ready for this? this amazing segue is it not when she goes to male surgical at the hospital that she meets patsy that's how i think that so happens, right? yeah, yeah yeah i think so <laughs> <laughs> or at the very least like it's in the it's in that season three transition uh period with jenny yeah. uh so yes smooth. So smooth. perfect so yeah I loved Patsy. I love Patsy. <laughs> um, and I'm going to explain who Patsy is and why I love her so much. Uh, so, but, but the step back with, yeah, the, the plot with, um, 
Jenny. Uh, so Jenny is the character that up until about halfway through season three, the show is following. Uh, the um, the whole show is based on a book written by uh, a woman named Jennifer Worth, uh, who Jenny is while not have doesn't have quite the same name is uh, named after and represents. Um, and so it's so the first yeah two and a half seasons are while it is very much an ensemble show, it's about her. Um, she's a little bit higher than the rest of the ensemble. Uh, and then as happens often in British television, uh, the actress who plays Jenny, uh, decided she wanted to do other things. Um, and so they had to figure out, the show had to figure out what to do. And they made a really interesting choice, which was that they accepted. They said, okay, the show is still super popular. Um, and let's, we're not gonna do anything dramatic with the fact that we have to shift the show, cough, Downton Abbey, cough. Uh, <laughs> um, we're just going to accept that, like, this is, these women are midwives. They're, like, women in their early 20s who are sort of upwardly mobile and are either going to go on to other careers or get married or both. Uh, sort of a transition moment in their lives. And so let's accept that we're going, that, um, midwives are going to come and they're going to leave and we're going to let them have kind of natural story arcs, uh, which I think honestly adds to a lot of the like emotional um, realism of the show and why you don't feel like someone is being kept there uh, for artificial reasons because they need the character to keep going. Uh, so like, that's really great. And it also means that they were, a they're able, I think, to, um, diversify the main cast in many different kinds of ways. And uh, I think are uh, going to continue to go do so as, as the show goes on. So, you know, it starts with like the three midwives are three middle-class white girls, uh, three straight middle-class white girls. And um, that starts to change after they realize that Jessica Rainey is going to leave and they should bring in a new, another midwife to, uh, not replace that character, but to have another midwife in the show. And the character that they bring in is Patsy Mount. So it's uh, halfway through the season, um, she's introduced, and I swear she waltzes into Nanata's house like a ginger-haired Catherine Hepburn of my dreams. Uh, I didn't go back and, and watch the first couple episodes where she is, but so I can't tell you exactly what it was that made my wife and I go, yeah, she's definitely queer, right? Like, we're not making, this isn't just us, right? But it took us about two episodes. And we were like, there's something about how she wears wide-legged trousers and doesn't talk about her personal life and seems knowing, but doesn't, like, join in on Trixie's boy crushness that makes us think she's, she's, please tell me she's a lesbian. Please tell me this isn't just our desperate desire for some queer representation on this show, which up to that point, there hadn't been. Um, well, Anna actually texted me and she said, is Patsy queer? Yes. I was like, yeah, you think so? <laughs> that wasn't just you guys. Excellent. I'm glad it wasn't just me at least or just us. Uh, but it was great. And it does take like another season of the show before it is revealed that uh, Patsy has a girlfriend. Um, and it's another nurse who works at the hospital nearby. Um, and the nurse name is Delia. She's adorable. She's Welsh. Uh, she, um, 
they they start to tease at the fact that yeah they're they're super happy and adorable together though obviously like because this is the early 1960s they are uh, their relationship is very much under wraps um, but there's there's this whole as it goes up to the end of season four um, which the season four finale like morning sickness plot arc is like the happy story in the season four finale because also in the season four finale is when Trixie goes to AA and it's like really devastating. Um, and also Patsy and Delia think that they are going to get an apartment together. And immediately before that happens, Delia gets in a traffic accident, is in a coma, wakes up and has amnesia. It is the most infuriating plot arc of Call the Midwife. It just, I was so mad at this show. I was never going to like give up on the show. I don't want to go quite that far, but it was not only like a super out of like left field melodramatic soap opera-y thing for the show to do, um, but it was in a way that is very, very common um, way to deal with queer characters on TV and especially queer female characters um, on TV. Uh, this was something that actually in 2016 came up a lot, uh, people on the internet might remember, um, because of a number of high-profile shows that uh, killed off their lesbian characters, uh, including, and I am about to spoil a few shows, uh, <laughs> Lexa on The 100, uh, Pusey on Orange is the New Black, and Denise on The Walking Dead. Um, I'm familiar with the first two shows. Uh, actually, I don't, I've never watched The Walking Dead, but um, in all of these cases, my understanding is that the not only were lesbian characters killed off, but uh, the characters were killed off like right before or immediately after they their happily ever after moment, essentially. Like, and that is really kind of, it's this, really terrible trope in stories that has been true for a long time where, um, you know, girl meets girl, girl falls in love with girl, girl almost lives happily ever after, then one of the girls dies. It really speaks to a lot of awful uh, stereotypes about how queer people, LGBT people can never be happy, um, that society is always going to get in the way or their own like inner demons are always going to get in the way. Uh, and it's it's really problematic. And um, and this season of uh, Call the Midwife that did that kind of happened around the same time that people were talking about it a lot. That was incredibly frustrating for me. Uh, Can I ask a question real quick? Yeah. Is that, do they treat male gay characters the same way as they do lesbians? Um, so they, yes and no. Um, there tends to be, I think, I want to say that there's definitely still the sort of, like, queer people can never be happy, uh, thing that exists through so much of, like, pop culture and literature. Uh, I think that the whole, like, almost being happy and then, like, having it snatched from your, snatched from your hands thing does tend to affect queer female characters more, or at least is seen as affecting them more. 
Uh, and the conversation in 2016 in particular was about queer female characters and the problems. Uh, I, can't remember, I can't remember if it was Glad or someone else did a survey of, or someone else that regularly does surveys of like LGBT characters on TV kind of even showed uh, in, in their 2016 survey, uh, it was like, representation was better for everyone except for queer women. So that was also part of the conversation in there. Um, but it's, you know, there's the the trope uh, on, if you want to go on TV tropes, uh, which is a glorious black hole of a website, if you've never, if any of you have never been there before, um, the, the trope is referred to as barrier gaze uh, because it uh, affects queer characters of all genders. Um, but there are, there is this particular storyline that is especially affects uh, queer women. So they don't kill off Delia. And thankfully they don't kill off Delia because that means that they decide, they can decide to fix this. <laughs> and I don't know if someone told someone in the call, if they were always planning this or if someone told someone in the call the midwife writer's room because they bring Delia back. Delia gets better. She comes back to Poplar. Uh, she has her, her memory has returned. Uh, she has to deal with some health issues. It's not like she just magically gets better, but like, uh, she, she has to, it's actually a really sweet story where she has to kind of fight with her parents for her independence, uh, to come back to Poplar. And, uh, and obviously like without telling them that a large part of the reason why she wants to come back to Poplar is because that's where her girlfriend is. And then, so they're able then to spend some time letting uh, Patsy and Delia just be happy and to like negotiate what it means uh, for for them to have a relationship. Uh, Delia ends up moving into Nonata's house. Uh, so they're living in the same place and seeing each other a lot. And uh, it's, it's this, there's some interesting like negotiations that happen there. Patsy, I think, has to deal with the it, it is teased that Patsy's never thought about herself as like a lesbian or having what we now call a queer identity. Um, she's uncomfortable. At one point, they go to a lesbian bar and like Patsy is super uncomfortable with the idea essentially of being in a queer space in a way that Delia isn't so much. Um, which is just interesting, uh, but it's not overwrought and it's not like they are beset with like moral quandaries and, and it's not that they are fearful all the time of, um, of the danger that they are in. And it sort of goes back to what we we're saying earlier also about the idea that like the show gets knocked as like a feel good show or a saccharine show um, because it has sort of a positive outlook on the lives of the people in it. And the fact that it just kind of lets, finally, though it take, though it like has some fits and starts to get there, lets these two characters uh, be happy and uh, live in the world. And that this is also happening in a historical drama uh, means a lot. And it speaks to the importance of uh, representation in on TV and also in the stories we tell about history. It's easy to, in a lot of traditional historical narratives, to essentially make it seem like gay people didn't exist until the modern age. Uh, and, and that can be a, a really devastating thing. And even more foolishly, sometimes it feels like, you know, 
non-white people didn't exist until the modern age, uh, which is also terrible. And uh, this representation matters. And I hope that Call the Midwife continues with that, um, that trend. They have shown, they have like had a wide diversity of people kind of in the community of Poplar. Um, but I think it's always great when like the main characters, the midwives are also a diverse group of women with a diverse group of experiences. I've seen a tease for the season that's coming out in 2018, that they are going to have an Afro-Caribbean midwife. I am super excited about it. Uh, I highly recommend, yes, you go, you guys can go and look at this. Uh, Layla's making excited faces. <laughs> <laughs> I have not um, heard about this. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so they seem to be continuing to expand that idea, and I hope that they do that because it is because of the way the show is structured, because of its willingness to center women's lives and looking at women's lives. It's also super important that they continue to expand the variety of women's lives that they focus on. While I think we could talk about Call the Midwife literally all day, I think we should bring in our guest, Amy Chambers, who is joining us from Manchester, where she is a senior lecturer at Manchester Metropolitan University. In her work, Amy looks at representation and projected futures of women and minority groups within scientific cultures and imagined futures in Anglo-American entertainment media. She also regularly contributes to the great popular cultural blog, Science and Entertainment Laboratory, and she is currently working on a book titled from Star Child to Star Wars, Science, Religion, and Cinema from 1967 to 1977, in which she explores post-Hollywood science-based cinema and how mainline U.S. religious groups have influenced, responded to, or appropriated science on screen. And I can say personally, after reading your posts on the Science and Entertainment Laboratory and talking to you on Twitter for a couple of years, I'm so happy to have a real-life conversation with you and welcome you to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's it's great to actually finally get to be involved and sort of meet you, if only virtually. Okay. Well, I just, I will echo what Layla said. Uh, when I first started grad school and sort of started using Twitter for work, you're one of the first people that I started following, which was really fortuitous because uh, your work made me realize like, oh, we can do like pop culture stuff. It doesn't have to be all uh, Galileo all the time. Uh <laughs> So it's just like a really nice thing to like, yeah, inject into my brain really early on <laughs> and break the cycle of Galileo, <laughs> which is just shorthand for like stodgy, boring um, studies of science. You do not do stodgy, boring studies of science. And I, I'm just fascinated by how interdisciplinary your work is. And so I guess to kick us off, um, can you just tell us how you managed to carve out such a cool uh, niche for your research and talk to us a bit just about how you came here and came to be doing this work um yeah it's um kind of fluky really because a lot of it comes from moments of uh sort of unexpected moments of academic sort of introduction so I started off as a um bachelor's undergraduate looking specifically at um history I had a uh, program set up um looking at military and naval history um specifically um post American Civil War, uh, military and naval history. That's what I did for my three first three years of my undergraduate program. 
Um, and uh, I also picked up a couple of modules in film studies. Uh, it was the only thing that would fit in my first year um, program to fill out my first semester was a module on the introduction to film. And I thought that sounded fun. And I went in and the first clip they showed was a clip from Singing in the Rain, uh, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And uh, I used to watch it with my mom on Sunday afternoons and I loved it. And uh, I rang her up as soon as I came out of that class to tell her that I'd be changing my degree to <laughs> history with a minor in film studies. Um, and I always thought of them as two separate spheres. Um, and so as a sort of student, it was sort of my relief from the history was to do the film and vice versa. Um, and then when I got into my fourth year, I ended up taking some cultural history modules, uh, one of which was called um, America on Film, which looked at the history of the US um, across um, the Hollywood system and thinking about how points of history um, intersect with um, the industry, um, how they're represented not only through uh, historical films and political films, but also through um, entirely fictional films. And I did a presentation on Planet of the Apes, wrote a master's dissertation on how we could use Planet of the Apes as um, looking at how uh, the 68 version transitions through to the 2001 Tim Burton edition, um, thinking about how the issues and ideas across that changed across history and across time. Um, it went down like a, didn't go down very well in the traditional history department doing Comet of the Apes <laughs> and pop culture. Um, and then I ended up following that into a entire uh, thesis um, at PhD on Comet of the Apes as a reflection of countercultural trends in America in the 1960s into the early 1970s. It's a long story. Um, <laughs> and then after I finished my PhD, I went to work uh, in the history of science department on a project that was looking at the intersection of, intersection of religion, science and entertainment media, which is where the science and entertainment lab comes from. Um, and yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> but it was just this sort of shift, sort of little things that came in and it was just this project that came up that looked at, they wanted someone who had a background in science fiction, was interested in science um, and could speak to uh, religion as well. And I've done a couple of chapters that looked at science, technology and Planet of the Apes and religion and Planet of the Apes. And that seemed to be enough to get me into that project. Um, and then, yeah, you, there's just those little moments where you're not quite sure how you got to where you are. But <laughs> um, yeah, a weird and wonderful move from... History of and that's such a, moving oh, no, it's just like to go from like military history to <laughs> writing your thesis on on Planet of the Apes. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> good job. Yeah, I don't know quite how it happened, but it did. <laughs> I was like, oh, obviously you did military history to start off with, and I was like, yeah. <laughs> and then I randomly took a module in film, and then I picked up a module on film and history because it looked fun, and yeah, it just sort of snowballed. <laughs> So you said that your um, your master's project did not really go down all that well in a traditional um, history department, and I think we find also sometimes that um, that kind of stuff is a little bit of a hard sell to um, capital H historians, and that sometimes there's this like disconnect between historians or other like uh, humanists who do. Um, pop culture work is like it's on the side work and then they have their like real history work and so I was wondering if you like 
aside from what you alluded to about your master's project, um, if you've had to deal with any of that kind of um, academic pushback, uh, either about your specific research topics, working on science fiction in general, or about like how public facing your work is, like you know, there's like sometimes among academics and like disdain for being on the internet or writing blog posts or things like that. So yeah, I get I the, the discussion a lot. I get the discussion a lot of why would you why do you use Twitter? Why why be on social media? And I'm like I use it. It sound, makes it sound really boring and and. I don't know what the right word for it is, but using Twitter specifically for research, academic work um, and academic networks. Um, it's not, it is social for me in the sense that sometimes it's nice to know that there are other people out there working on similar things or totally different things who are interested on what you're, in what you're working on. People struggling with this idea that being a historian and being very engaged with uh, Twitter, especially um, in my case, and blogging and sort of putting your work out there through different formats. You get a lot of people assuming that it's either a bit low culture and a bit sort of trashy way of, of engaging with and, and communicating research. But for me, I've actually found it really exciting. I've met people that I'd have never have met at an academic conference or um, in a trad traditional setting women of science, people who work as scientists, uh, research groups that are um, engaged with it, promoting uh, women in STEM, all of these things have come through um, the sort of online stuff. So for me, it's integral to me as a researcher, but also that public facing stuff, which is so important to me as, a, as an academic, um, is so it's sort of integrated into that. I've been pretty lucky though, um, academically, there is a community um, of historians that work around and publish in and go to a conference called Film and History, uh, which was one of the first um, journals that engaged directly in the discussion of film and history together as connected and equal disciplines. Um, it still tends to focus on um, historical films, so films about a particular historical moment or a historical figure or character or films that are particularly important historically. Um, but there's definitely a set of us that look at totally fictional, non-history-based stuff. And I have to say, the first time I went to the Film and History Conference, which is generally held in either Madison or Milwaukee in Wisconsin, it was like I'd found my people. It was great. Suddenly <laughs> you're like, oh, I don't have to explain why, why uh, studying film is an entirely... Uh, helpful way of thinking about history especially for someone who looks at history specifically post-1960s um, and as someone who's interested in cultural history and cultural trends the film is and film and television are so integral to that sort of especially within American popular culture um, so I, I get pushed back in the sense that I always get that question at conferences like you can do that with a film and I'm like yes <laughs> <laughs> But then I've been to lit conferences where I've explained sort of like the processes of filmmaking and drafting and redrafting and uh, script changes and editors and the sort of whole industry that sits around it. And this sort of like, oh, it's the same. And you're like, yeah, it's a similar process. <laughs> so you, you get sort of, it's not pushback. It's more sort of fascination that you're actually able to do this combined with the, your job is so cool. And I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> Agreed. Um, so, well, in that case, then I do want to ask 
specifically about the the period that you're working on in your book project, this sort of decade, the 60s into the 70s um, in science fiction. And I just, this is also the period that I work on, so as a sort of selfish interest, but I just, can you talk to us a little bit about um, this moment in the genre and why it's important for understanding uh, American culture in general, I guess? Yeah, some, I mean, I look at it specifically to do with science-based fiction and science fiction. Um, and and for me, those dates are sort of uh, an important bookend, A, because you're writing a book and you've got to get it to sort of fit into something reasonable so you don't end up writing, you know, a student essay. Since the beginning of time, it's not very helpful. So <laughs> it gives you a nice um, boundary. Um, but I specifically look at 67, 68 through to 77 um, because of um, a turn in American science fiction, British science fiction as well, but predominantly bookended by um, American films um, that start in 68 uh, with the release of 2001 A Space Odyssey and Planet of the Apes um, and resolves in 1977 with the release of Star Wars and um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, so 68 is an important point in the history of um, Hollywood because it is the official end of censorship um, in Hollywood. So you have had films that have broken the censorship rules and have been rela- released that sort of engage with ideas and, and stories about science um, that would not have been permitted during the censorship era. Um, but you've got this sudden burst of sort of creative cinema that comes out um, from 1968, uh, where directors have suddenly got a lot more freedom to produce and create um, images and ideas in my case about science that haven't been available prior to that um, and you get sort of this fascinating series of films that are all sort of squished into this um, period which are very much engaged with ideas about science and it's science fiction where science is the um, main propel propellant in that particular narrative rather than just being something in the background that allow, allows the story story to happen so you get things like the andromeda strain which is about viruses and about um that experimentation it's so central to that particular narrative um and when you get to 77 star wars comes in and ruins everything um <laughs> and we and we sort of like I mean, like those things on twitter is like your most unpopular opinion that no one ever agrees with i hate star wars i just never <laughs> It's never done anything for me. I can like I can research it, read about it, write about it, but I just it never didn't. I watched Silent Running as a child with my dad, not Star Wars. So that gives you an indicator of the type of science fiction that I got into and how I got into them. So it's sort of you get this moment where you've got Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is much more sort of Kubrickian two thousand and one, that sort of um, science and wonder and um, communicating with with aliens and this sort of like much more sort of philosophical science fiction released almost at exactly the same time as Star Wars, which is not, Lucas doesn't even refer to it as science fiction, it's science fantasy. He never intended it to be, you know, this sort of like stalwart of the science fiction genre that it becomes. Um, so it's sort of this interesting moment. And, and so they historically link into the history of the industry, but also in terms of the content of, of science in the movies at that time, they're quite important beginning and end points. Good luck with the backlash. 
after this podcast comes out. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favourite unpopular opinion. I used to teach a module on science fiction, and the week that I did Star Wars, because if you don't put it in, students are like, why have you not put Star Wars in our module? I did it on merchandising um, and the importance of (laughs) popular culture and ephemeral culture, um, and that was how I got around teaching Star Wars. (laughs) that's great actually (laughs) well let's talk about stuff that you've managed to get a little bit closer to Rebecca um so yeah of course as us being lady science uh we especially love the work that you have done about uh women scientists in the media and women in science in the media and women in sci-fi uh and so in one of your essays where you talk about this um you quote something that I feel like is kind of a cliche, but is a useful cliche, which is, uh, if she can see it, she can be it. And I was wondering if you could just like take a moment to unpack that and explain sort of what that means for you in your work. Um, it was a phrase that I came about when I was researching that. So the whole women in science thing comes from um, a rant I had about Planet of the Apes, or specifically Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Um, there's always a link <laughs> and I was really frustrated that the two female characters in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes which was the second uh, of the most recent um, cycle um, you had Erin who was a seed Erin the girl one um, was a former CDC they don't even give the female ape a name it's only in the marketing material and so I, this sort of spawned from the fact that I was irritated and ranted at lots of people about this and so I started researching um, women in STEM on screen and and thinking about it in recent uh, representations and how far it had come forward and if you can see it if she can see it she can be it uh, was a phrase that came up a couple of times because a lot of the research that's been done on female representation in Hollywood has been conducted by the Gina Gina Davis Institute on gender in media um, who have a campaign called See Jane and it's the whole campaign is about uh, what can a girl be if she can imagine it and where in culture should we be trying to engage women in young women in thinking about their future careers and, and what they can actually achieve um, as um, women in the future so they've got a campaign at the present moment which is called Real Girls R-E-E-L Inspire Real Girls R-E-A-L um, and they're talking about, in that case, Merida from Brave, who's sort of Disney's, one of Disney's first, or Disney Pixar's first women, woman, who's represented <laughs> Merida. I got my really tongue-tied. Um, so the campaign of Real Girls Inspire Real Girls um, is to do with um, young girls wanting to be archers, which will be Merida from Brave and Katniss Everdeen um, from The Hunger Games. That was what I was trying to say, but the names all got mixed up in my head. Redheads, <laughs> archery. Um, so you get this idea of thinking about how things that appear on screen can actively encourage young girls to think about what they could be in the future. So that project is much broader and is intended to be a much more broader um, thing about putting professional women on screen. Um but for me, that phrase was really helpful about thinking about why and where the issues come from in terms of, of how girls get involved in sciences and how they don't get involved in sciences. Um, so you, you've written about, and you've done some interesting 
doing surveys about uh, women scientists on television. Uh, so I was wondering if there were any conclusions uh, in particular that you've drawn from looking at a pretty wide variety of women scientists on TV. Um, I looked specifically at sort of post-2000 uh, women. I'm interested in that sort of um, changeover um, and, and thinking about, because oh, there's previous studies that ran up to 2000, but there's not anything on post-2000 representations of, of women in science. It's not to say that that's a moment of change sort of historically, but rather those studies just don't exist. Um, and it's something that I want to look at in much more detail um, in my future research on this. Um, because I think there's a distinction between the television and film representations and, and the volume of women scientists seems to be higher on the small screen than it is on the on the big screen. Um, perhaps some of this is down to the fact that it's less risky um, in a small screen setting. You can introduce these characters, you can develop them over a long period of time, uh, rather than asking an audience to automatically believe that there's a woman and also she is a scientist. Um, <laughs> rather than having to sort of build it up. She's, don't worry guys, she's a mother, she's a daughter, she's a sister, she's a lab assistant um, and a scientist. In the case of TV, you can sort of build them up and, and you get characters like um, Temperance Brennan, Bones, um, who's sort of introduced as a, as a scientist character and the core of that show straight off. Um, but she develops as a character and, and becomes sort of normalised and less frightening by becoming a member of a family, both scientific family and a, a literal mum, dad and two kids family as well. Um, so I think there's a higher volume. They also tend to be more bioscientists as well. Uh, so women tend to be associated with the biosciences. So you have the scientists on the Big Bang Theory who I tried to sort of keep a record of every sort of female scientist who had appeared in the show um, and there was only one person that I could find who wasn't a bioscience. Not that there's anything wrong with the biosciences or there's anything inherently problematic but th there is this sort of idea of the softer sciences versus the hard sciences um, and often when you get women represented as, as physicists they are kooky or unusual or so you get sort of um, Gillian Holtzman in Ghostbusters as this sort of like kooky physicist yeah you get yeah the sort of like the, the the sort of lines of what a woman can be in that sort of representation is something I'm really interested in and if it's just what I've seen or if it's it's actually a larger trend uh it's part of a bigger study <laughs> excellent yeah again you mentioned uh the big bang theory which I thought that your your writing about that was was interesting I I sort of have mixed feelings about the show I watched I was watched regularly for a while and I dropped off watching it and there are definitely things about it that make me crazy I think it's true of everyone uh but I do think that kind of as you as you know in your essay there are some um unique and varied portrayals of women in science uh so I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on that well it's sort of this idea that in order to give a, a rounded representation it's not just to have a woman scientist but also show them as part of a community as professional women's the challenge that women's as professional women and the challenges that come with being at a certain level in any field regardless of, of gender and so they do offer that in some senses but it's something that as a show they develop across the series eventually sort of um, 
So, <laughs> yeah, so they sort of introduced the alternative women to Penny um, later in the series. Is, um, and you get Amy Farrah Fowler as that first introduction as this sort of like socially incapable, odd ball. Um, and the sort of the fact that she's a scientist, she's just really a the same nerdy scientist stereotype, but a girl one. And so that sort of is not great. And the more they develop her, I think she she gets better as a character. But it's also helped, I think, in terms of the fact that she is um, played by an actual woman neuroscientist, which sort of helps that in terms of how it's spoken about in broader popular culture rather than just in the show itself. They they start off again as stereotypes and then become a bit more developed, but that, I think that's the same with the male characters. I think it starts off as a like, one-note series that they don't think is going to be... If you told me when it started that this is going to be a 10-series plus... 10-season um, plus series that was going to be the US sort of like top-rated comedy, I wouldn't have believed you, but it, it has this sort of like odd longevity um, that sort of continues to be something that doesn't have particularly big story arcs or anything other than the characters to, to draw you back in. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how it, this seems to be a very like uh, like generally popular show, but scientists that I've seen tend to hate it very much. So I'm wondering if you have thoughts about what's kind of going on there between like the different communities that the show is speaking and not speaking to. There's some interesting research done by, um, I think she's Australian National University, um, a researcher called Rochelle Lee, um, who's looked at um, the Big Bang Theory within a sociological project and asking people about how um, they've understood it in terms of, of science and how they have seen the show and then been uh, inspired to go and look up a particular scientific theory or a particular idea that's been in the show so there's a sort of interesting narrative around it as a piece of science communication that actually inspires people to go and look things up and go I didn't understand what they were talking about and rather than just sort of letting it blow over actually go and look it up um but I can imagine the frustration of a scientist is this sort of representation of it as this sort of real life portrayal of what it is to be a scientist and the the ease of grants and the ease of of sort of discoveries and sort of collaborations and and the way they work and and the sort of representation of the university as a wider institute is is quite problematic I think throughout the series and I can imagine it's frustrating if that's the main one of the main ways that a lot of people learn about research scientists and and that's how you're how you're represented um, and people want you to sort of align to that stereotype and that's where we come with problems with like, this is not what a scientist looks like, or this is what a scientist looks like it should be. This idea of what we expect a scientist to look like in, in comparison to the reality of what an actual scientist looks like. And the problem that we all have of being young women with or working towards a PhD and that assumption that you're not old enough or you're not the right gender to have a PhD and to have a title and those sort of problems that come with people's expectations of what you can be based on what you look like. Um, and I think Big Bang Theory attempts to engage with that, but at the same time confirms a lot of those stereotypes that we try to work against. Well, does anyone have any final questions or anything for Amy? 
Thank you very yeah, much for really having me. Fun. I was very excited oh, that you invited yeah. me to come and ramble at you. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for coming and talking with us. And um, we'll be sure that we include um, links to all of the articles of yours that we talked about today and to your um, to your page um, so that people can keep up with the stuff that you're posting on um, academia.edu. I don't, um, use, I don't usually use that, but currently I'm because I'm just about to start my new post. I don't have okay. a proper one yet at the university. Um, so once that's set up, I'll send you the link to my proper university one um, because academia.edu has lots of problems yeah. <laughs> ethically <laughs> and I just feel bad promoting them. <laughs> So this month, we are going to forego our last segment of One Annoying Thing, because this episode has literally been cursed. We have dealt with all sorts of problems, including a blackout during recording, so we're going to quit while we're ahead. So anyway, if you liked the episode, what you heard of it today, head right on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review so that others can find us. Questions about any of the segments today? Tweet us at at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, to sign up for a monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea for an article, and more, visit LadyScience.com. We are an independent magazine, so we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit LadyScience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at LadyScienceMag, and on Twitter at, at LadyXScience.